Welcome along to the weekend edition of Red Star Radio, and oh my God, have we got a treat for you today. Uh, I grew up watching the election specials on the BBC, watching uh, the infamous Peter Snow and his swingometer declare that Labour had lost again, or that Tony Blair had won another term despite the fact that nobody actually liked the fucker. Right, but this is better than a British election. It's better than an American election. It's better than the French guillotining their leaders. Well, maybe not. It's a Canadian election, and it's a Canadian an election with a unique twist in that we have live on the ground reporting from our special Canadian bureau given that this is an Anglo-Canadian production we have Red Star Radio uh, co-host chief Canadian editor chief Canadian political analyst chief Canadian economics correspondent Layla hello hello uh, I am uh, well not live I guess but recording from Ontario, the worst province in Canada <laughs> yeah take that Doug Ford <laughs> The jokes are coming in early this time, folks. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> More where that came from. Yeah, we um we started vaccination passports yesterday, so I'm a little salty, but um it's okay. I, I'm still ready to, to give my unbiased view, my unbiased professional view of this uh, election um for for the listeners. I'm really I'm, I'm willing to not just be sarcastic and snarky the whole time. <laughs> Though there will be some of that because that's why some of our listeners do tune in. Um <laughs> And this monument to public service broadcasting is why I will be applying to get some of the BBC's license fee. You're not going to get this from Hugh Edwards on the 10 o'clock news on BBC. Um, so let's unroll this hideous mess that uh, is uh, the Canadian bourgeois political scene. So mm. tell us. What are the results? What is the damage? Yeah, so basically the House of Commons is looking exactly like it did when the election started. Uh, this was a huge miscalculation by Justin Trudeau. Um, he uh, he called the snap election using the shortest available time possible for a federal election. It's been it was the shortest election federal election in our history because he was so certain that he was going to just waltz right in here and snag a majority. So the results is that the Liberal Party gained two seats, the Conservatives Conservatives lost two seats, and all the other party, parties essentially stayed the same. The NDP gained one seat, the Bloc Québécois gained one seat. So nothing has changed. We just spent, as many commentators in Canada have said, we spent $600 million to just reconstruct the House of Commons and exactly commons in exactly the same way. We didn't even get to see the NDP lose a lot so that Jagmeet Singh would step down as leader. I'm very disappointed about that. Okay, one Hey, but you know he had the backing of Bernie Sanders. Why is it why didn't he win <laughs> with the backing of such a proven winner? Yeah, he was he was he was insisting until the election day that he was the NDP was going to form election or sorry, going to form government. <laughs> so well, he didn't say in which country though. <laughs> Yeah, like maybe he thought that um like I don't know, the the if if you just got the West Coast it would be enough to form form government. <laughs> Which he did get. Uh, the NDP actually um swept away the West Coast of uh, British Columbia, uh, the West Coast of Canada and British Columbia, so I guess good on them. But they mostly stayed the same. They just gained one seat. Um I was really hoping that he would lose like 10 seats or something so that he would have to resign because I think Jagmeet Singh is not only the most annoying politician in Canada, but perhaps the most annoying politician in the entire world. So, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that's a big claim. We've got to explore that further. 
I mean, we got some real competition for him over here. But um, we'll come to our friends in the Canadian equivalent of the Labour Party later on. So you're stuck again with the soy soyocracy yeah. of Justin Trudeau um, in a minority government. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, we. Um we're again in a minority government, which means that like the the average time, the other average life expectancy for a minority government in Canada is 18 to 24 months. It could be even shorter than that. So um, we're due for another. We're going to have to go through this whole dog and pony show again in less than two years, perhaps. Um, I think, though, that because none of the parties really, um, you know, uh, had a, a good election, like no party really got made a lot of gains. I think the parties will be a bit more amenable amenable to working with the liberals to just maintain government for as long as they can. I don't think any they got strong signals in this election that no one was really interested in giving anyone a majority. So I think that this will forestall perhaps another election, but we'll see. Um really like I think the only interesting thing that happened in this election was the surge by the People's Party of Canada, which is led by Maxime Bernier. It's kind of like this libertarian party. It was running on a, a very li- kind of economically libertarian party for Canada. Um, but was, what was distinctive about it was its um, very strong opposition to the COVID uh, restrictions and safety protocols that have basically subsumed Canadian society in most places over the last two years. So Maxime Bernier openly, uh, who is the leader of that party, openly did not get vaccinated. He is against lockdowns. He is against vaccine mandates. Very different than all of the other party leaders, all of whom are for all of those things to various degrees. Um, so that was interesting. I think this is maybe a little bit of a signal of maybe something that can change in the future. But um, I think overall, what we've seen in this election is that the parties overall are quite similar. Like, the, even though the Conservatives started with a bit of a different twist, like they've over the election changed their positions and came to be like, you know, it was a difference in in maybe degree, not in kind for sure, between the Conservatives and the Liberals. And so a lot of people even like a lot of people are wondering why we're even why we're even having this election. <laughs> like like we didn't, no one really knew what Trudeau was running on. <laughs> Um, so yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so did um, Bernier and the, uh, the the PPC get any actual seats? No, unfortunately, did they didn't. Uh, even Bernier himself did not win his seat that he was running for in in uh, Quebec. Uh, he has a seat in Quebec City, a riding in Quebec City, which he failed to win again. Um, very funnily, the leader of the Green Party, Anamali Paul, uh, lost her third attempt to win her riding in Toronto Centre. Um, so- well, that's something. <laughs> I know it really is something. So she's likely going to step down, I think, as a Green Party leader. Um, but yeah, so we don't have any spots in the parliament for the PPC. Um, it would have been nice to have someone there just in parliament to speak against the lockdowns. I, I personally couldn't bring myself to vote for them because I don't, I, I, I can't vote for a party with such, I mean, calling for such harsh austerity measures against that will hurt the working class. And I don't, I don't feel like um, the working class should suffer because of the errors of bourgeois governments. So I couldn't vote for Bernier, even though I do like his for for Bernier's party rather. So I do like his like style. I think he I, I do. Obviously, I think he's 100 percent right on, right on COVID-19. But I ended up just spoiling my ballot personally. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question. Um, yeah, no PPC in the parliament. But forever in so, our hearts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, so Trudeau is going to be dependent upon what the votes of the NDP to be able to pass legislation. Well, the the official opposition is, of course, the Conservatives. Um, I think judging from his platform that he ran on, uh, anything he proposed would have been he could have passed it with some combination of either the progressive, quote unquote, progressive parties, or with the backing of the conservatives, like there's nothing in his platform that he ran on this time that couldn't have been passed with some combination of the parties in the House. Yeah, he he will have an issue passing anything that he ran on um, with some combination of the parties in the House. But we don't we don't do coalition governments in Canada. We haven't really done a formal coalition like in the UK. It's a bit I think it happened a few times, like in 45, for instance, I think that was a formal coalition government, if I'm not mistaken. No, I am mistaken. Fifty one. <laughs> well, no, there's but there was no coalitions oh, okay. between uh, the thirties, uh, where there was a national government from like thirty one to thirty five, I think, and then the next coalition was the Cameron Clegg <laughs> one, twenty ten to twenty fifteen. Yeah. Um, uh, which the bourgeoisie uh, here hammered that 2010 one together with the specific purpose of having a stable government that could restore asset prices and uh, reliably attack the working class. Yeah, the the coalition governments when it counts. <laughs> oh yeah, they can. The the bourgeoisie can really come together when it matters. Um, so taking a step back then from the immediate. Uh, boringness that um define the election um you have on the podcast before in searing terms described canadian politics as anemic and that's the one of the politer ways that you've put it so what is it about canadian bourgeois politics that makes it so uh anemic in your mind well i think it can all it all comes down to for me this is something i'm still thinking through i actually think canadian politics is quite complex um it's it's very it's not an easy kind of domain to study canadian politics but i think essentially it comes down to the reason that we never really had a real bourgeois revolution um pierre trudeau in the 80s and the 60s and 70s when he was leading this country who is of course the father of justin trudeau was kind of the closest to really try to bring the bourgeois uh, segments in Canada together and create a cohesive vision and a cohesive identity for the country. But it ended up being extremely postmodern. And and like Trudeau actually was very kind of a brilliant intellectual in a lot of ways. Like he kind of recognized that the nation building that had gone on prior to modernity or sorry, during modernity uh, was no longer feasible in this postmodern period. And so he was trying to figure out another way of doing nationalism um, given the uh, current age. And so his his vision was very like of this cosmopolitan nationalism. He kind of brought in uh, first of, of all countries, brought in notions of multiculturalism, for instance, into um, the Canadian constitution. So, but it didn't really work because you can't really do a bourgeois revolution from above like that, right? Like, it's not simply a cultural project. Um, it, it has to be one in which the bourgeoisie comes together to fight off a common enemy. And just Canada's bourgeoisie never really had that. Um, we were, you know, up until the end of World War One. like, of course, Britain was Canada's dominant trading and investment partner. Um, we've always been like a junior imperialist partner of one great power. So up until the end of World War One, that was like dominantly Great Britain. And then there started to be a transition and the U.S. overtook the U.K. Um, in this in terms of trading and investment um, in the 20s. And that was basically accelerated through the World War Two. 
And, you know, as as uh, Britain was kind of destroyed following the Second World War, um, you know, Canada uh, needed to turn to some pl- somewhere to have its exports bought. And so its relationship with the USA became much more important to it following World War II. And really, like the hard final break came with Lester B. Pearson, our prime minister uh, during the 60s. And you can really see a conscious effort by this prime minister to change the direction of Canadian foreign policy in the benefit of the United States. And it's it's been this way since the 60s, basically. Like we support any kind of foreign policy effort that the U.S. Uh, wants to pursue as well. Um, basically, all of them. Um you know, I, I, I think it, you know, it comes down. So that's one of the reasons like with there's never there never was like a common enemy that the Canadian bourgeoisie had to fight against. And therefore you reunite, unite uh, together against and also at the same time, unite the, uh, you know, the proletariat and the, and the and the peasantry against and therefore, you know, go through this nation building kind of project that, you know, for instance, France and the UK went through. So we didn't have that in Canada. And so a national bourgeoisie has never really existed. There isn't like a shared national interest uh, amongst the provinces in Canada. And this is exacerba- exacerbated by the way in which uh, the Canadian state is formed. It's highly federated. federated. Uh, it wasn't meant to be, but it's ended up being one of the most decentralized federations in the world. Um, so an- another issue is that even today, even as an advanced capitalist nation, we're still heavily dependent on the export of raw resources, namely wood, crude oil, minerals. Um, and these are very susceptible to changes in the world market. So changes in the world market can affect the prices of these raw exports. And so our country has always been very susceptible to those changes. And so as a result, we're very dependent and very sensitive to the state of our dominant export partners. So right now, the dominant one is still the United States. But China is climbing, very quickly has climbed since the 90s as a dominant export partner of Canada. And this has created rifts amongst the different provinces, depending on the export that the province depends on. So basically, the bourgeoisies in Canada are divided among, they they kind of, um, they're rooted in each of the provinces of Canada, because the provinces are the political jurisdiction that have power over minerals in that geographical area. So, for instance, like very famously, Alberta is heavily dependent on oil exports to exports to the United States. And so this really colors the way in which the prairies, Alberta and the surrounding provinces vote in the election. They always vote quite conservative. The entire province outside of like a few pockets in the major cities are conservative. Um, You know, British Columbia is it does the most trade with China. And it always votes very much to the left. So the entire West Coast of Canada is orange, voted for the NDP. Um, and so, like, like the, the, the Prime Minister of Canada um, has to always try to negotiate between these different bourgeois interests amongst the provinces. And um, because the prices of raw e- exports, um, they change at different times, so... Like one, the cost of one export might be going up and the cost of another export might be going down. The uh, contradictions happen quite unevenly. So there's, they're always getting pulled in different directions and in different directions by different provinces. And so that's why I think that we give, we give birth to very like, <laughs> like soy prime ministers and leaders like Justin Trudeau. Cause they, 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 like essentially they have to play this like difficult negotiating role, not only like, you know, especially right now, as the imperialist power changes from the U.S. to China, 
trying to negotiate between this, um, the change in imperialist overlord. They also have to negotiate between the different um, demands of the bourgeoisies that don't have a shared interest, never really had a shared interest, not really. And mm. thirdly, so the sorry. just just to pause there for a moment. So the the Canadian bourgeoisie then really um, does it actually exist as a national bourgeoisie at all? Well, not really. Like they're especially at the beginning of the formation of the country, they're they, like the country came together because um, the different bourgeoisies uh, located in the different. Um, geographical areas of what is now Canada came together because they wanted to negotiate more favorable favorable loans from London. And they also wanted to create a railway across the country so that they can do more free trade amongst the different geographical areas. So there, you could say that, um, especially at the beginning of the formation of the country, um, the shared national bourgeoisie was perhaps railways. Uh, that's no longer the case. So, there, I mean, yeah, I, I would definitely not... I think that there is probably... There is like a you know, kind of shared bourgeois interest in terms, just like any other kind of capitalist nation, in terms of uh, of the states taking on uh, reproductive roles for as little cost as possible. So, and, and because our, our, our country is based, is heavily dependent on raw resources, um, and it's highly susceptible to um, changes in... Um, in, in, in world prices of these commodities, uh, the Canadian state has always been quite involved in Canadian capitalism to try to stabilize this situation, right? Um, so they do have an interest in, in terms of that, a shared interest in terms of that. But um, I would definitely not say there is a coherent national bourgeoisie. It's not cohesive. Right. Yeah. So it's remained, as you were saying, it's remained um, defined by its regions and by its essentially primary Exports yeah. being mostly raw resources. Yes. So, if, for instance, we had had a um, a native industrial bourgeoisie, then that could have created a shared bourgeois interest. You know, and you know that would have perhaps created that cohesive um, economic interest to bring together all of the bourgeoisies, like happened in other. Um, bourgeois, like the United States, for instance, but that never really happened here because our industrialization always heavily depended on foreign direct investment, namely from the United States. And so all the manufacturing yeah, so, and stuff that we had was always funded by the, the Americans. Yeah, so it was always um, a bit of a, an American transplant rather than the native bourgeoisie developing the industry themselves. Yeah, exactly. Like the national policies that we've had in Canada, historically speaking, have always relied on foreign capital um, for not only state like extracting the raw resources, so it always it was it was always depending on on two assumptions. Number one, that it could rely on foreign capital to extract raw resources and then use a surplus from that to industrialize the country, but also that the foreign branches uh, would take the lead in that industrialization. And for a while, that kind of was the case because um, there was high tariff, tariff walls for uh, exports um, going, uh, um, sorry, from the United States into Canada. And um, actually, the Canadian proletariat was always, especially relative to the Americans, perhaps not to the British, but certainly much more than the Americans, much more militant. And so they had fought for and won relatively higher wages than their American counterparts. And so American industrialists wanted to be able to access the Canadian market. 
because of the higher relative, the, the high wages and the, um, the, the good consumer base that was here. And so they did jump the tariff wall and establish a bunch of manufacturing bases in Canada. Um, but after free trade happened, uh, all of that basically left. Um, and so we, we got deindustrialized quite a bit. I mean, there still is a ton of manufacturing, but it's, it's gone down significantly because of free trade. The free trade right. agreement, like so, NAFTA, which is now yeah, else. so which is now the uh, the Trump mega deal, as he replaced it with, replaced it with something that was worded the same, but he was told was different. Um, which, by the way, Boris Johnson is now considering joining. Just uh, hot news from England. <laughs> that is some hot news. Um, I guess so, I guess you could uh, but, say that there is there's always been a strong kind of financial bourgeoisie in Canada because they've played a mediating role between the raw exports um, and the the kind of the uh, uh, the empires that bought the exports, but that's mm. just not it's not enough. Like you, we really needed that native industrial base that just never really we never had so, a native industrial bourgeoisie. We never we never really got that. So it's gone from basically being um, a, back in a colonial period, a site of raw resource extraction for the British, <laughs> to being a site of some manufacturing, but mainly raw resource extraction for the Americans, and now moving to being increasingly uh, raw resource extraction for China. Yes, it's it's quite a catch-22. Um it's kind of a, I wouldn't say it's equivalent to what people call a raw resource trap for the third world. But I'd say that it's kind of similar to that because, you know, we're rushing to sell our raw resources to, for instance, China, which has a very much stronger, well, one of the strongest manufacturing basis in the world, if not the strongest at the moment. And so then we export, for instance, our crude oil to China or, or our lumber, or whatever, to China. And then China uses that to grow their manufacturing base. And sell, and they sell back the manufacturing goods back to us at cheap prices, which undercut our own ability. Another undercutting of our own ability to develop our manufacturing base. But we can't get out of this because we we're, we're just so dependent on the exportation of raw resources. Like it. Yeah, you know, and I suppose if any federal government actually tried to come up with a nationally coherent economic plan for Canada, all the provinces, all the provincial bourgeoisies who are dependent upon the current setup would do their absolute best to make sure it was derailed. Well, yeah, I mean, previous attempts of trying trying to do that has failed. Like, um, for instance, there was an attempt by Pierre Trudeau to do that, and he faced a lot of resistance from Alberta. Um, uh, there, like, for a while, there was a lot of, there's always, like, some antagonism between the, pro like, so, for instance, for a long time, because uh, Ontario was a dominant auto manufacturing uh, area, and it still is. It still does a lot of auto manufacturing here. It's less and less, but it still is quite dominant. Like they have a contradictory interest to Alberta, right? Because the bourgeoisie in Alberta, they want to sell their gas and oil at the highest possible prices, of course, and Ontario would like it at the lowest possible prices, right? So there's a contradiction there. So it's difficult to create a cohesive policy in um, given the sight of so much contradiction like if the federal government had jurisdiction over the natural resources in Canada perhaps we could talk we could have a different conversation but kind of technically speaking just by accident uh, the founders of this country just assumed that um, most of the natural resources in Canada had been pretty much exploited and so in the original constitution of Canada of 1867 the British uh, North American Act they gave the provinces juris jurisdiction over um, the raw resources and the minerals and stuff. 
and because it just seemed unimportant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it turns out that new technologies opened up new venues for exploitation and uh, the ability to, for instance, um, uh, log uh, forests in the north of Ontario became available, which otherwise they assumed at the time that the forest had all had all been logged and 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 minerals which had before never been important in industry suddenly became important given the progress of technology so i don't know i i I, this is kind of an institutionalist viewpoint um but i do think the institutions of canada do play play a dominant role in um it does affect it a lot in, in the way in which things uh pan out uh in terms of this country's politics so uh, the the anemic nature of Canadian politics, due to essentially a, shall we say, um, an, an almost um, a truncated version of capitalism, almost that's been built there. Um, is that fair to say? Well, I- it's certainly it's certainly not it's not developed like in the same way that like um, any of the other G seven nations have, have developed. That's that'd be correct. Like. I- um, I, I'm unfortunately I'm, I'm really bad on international stuff, <laughs> so I don't, don't know exactly how, for instance, a country like Australia operates. I do understand that their political system is quite similar to our own, but um, yeah, it is it is kind of an oddly de- like an economy oddly dependent on raw resource extraction and foreign direct investment for industrialization. That is very unique to other, in contrast to other G7 countries. I think that what we've had different here is the benefit of a relatively strong and active uh, proletariat, which has, you know, which fought a lot of, a lot of very like, uh, important battles to win good wages and but i think also we benefit a lot from um radicals coming in from um, radical immigrants coming in from like finland and the uk w- who gave a lot of like energy to our socialist and working class movement in canada for a long time um and so i think that it that they are responsible in a large part for the higher level of life that we experience here like we're not obviously we're not a third world country we're like very well off country um, but yeah, it is, it is odd. It is kind of an odd advanced capitalist nation. Uh, I'm not sure how distinguished it is in that regard, but I do find that it's, it's an odd mix of like a very heavy reliance on raw resource extraction, but also like high tech in some areas, like in some pockets, very uneven, very like <laughs> oddly, like it's a very uneven kind of place, you know, like a lot of like odd Things that don't go together usually are going together very well <laughs> in Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, then that that leads us to the question of like the role of the working the working class in Canada. And you were saying that there there have been periods where the organized working class in Canada has been able to make significant gains, but clearly in recent years that's not been the case. So, is it the is it what happened there has been the the similar to what we had here which is that the the working class movement was suddenly and violently crushed or is it more like it was in say for instance germany as you could uh, hear from when we had that discussion with elena and michael about the german working class being slowly ground down over many decades is it more like a sudden break or is it more like that the canadian working class has just been ground down over the years to the point where it doesn't have the same significant role that it used to play anymore Mm. yeah no i i think it's more akin to uh a german case perhaps maybe a mix like um the canadian labor movement was rather more militant than the united states for a very long time 
Um, and Canadians, as a result of their militancy, still enjoy today various good, you know, good a good level of social provisioning. Um, and, you know, unlike the United States, Canada did have a very important six-week general strike called the Winnipeg Strike that, you know, spread across other Canadian cities. Um, it was in 1919 and was inspired by the events of 1917. And I don't think that the United States ever had any any general strike like that. Um, and the bourgeoisie and like responded to that like very aggressively. It didn't really achieve much in terms of immediate gains, but it really set the tone um, for the Communist Party of Canada, which actually was very involved in the labor movement and like a, a good party for a long time, like a very effective Communist Party relative to others. Um, but up until like World War II, actually, um, the, the major kind of oppressed class, like numerically speaking, was actually the petty bourgeoisie. And it wasn't until the industrialization of World War II um, that the, the proletariat became the dominant, like numerically speaking, dominant uh, oppressed class. And um, I think the, the Canadian bourgeoisie taking a lot of cues from the British um, dealt with this very, um, very smartly. A big turning point for me, in my mind, for the Canadian labor movement was actually the institution of um, a national policy for mandatory collective bargaining that the feds instituted using the War, the War Measures Act in 1944. And they had to do it because the proletariat was like fully employed in the factories due to war production. And every time they had an issue, they would just walk out of the factories and inter interrupt production. And so the bourgeoisie was like, okay, like we can't have these inter interruptions in production during the war. So we're going to force employers to go to the table because then the employers would just try to like starve them out and like the production would be would be um, stalled until one of them gave in one side of each, uh, the other gave in and the proletariat was doing a good job because they had full employment. Right. So they could just <laughs> get another job like they didn't care. So I think obviously like this, the the um, the kind of legislative paradigm we have here in Canada in terms of labor um, in terms of collective collective bargaining legislation, obviously has brought a lot of gains for the labor movement in Canada. That's undeniable. But it's also, also what it did is also curtail militancy. Okay, and this really came to bite the labor movement in in the ass, like um, in around the 1970s when the so-called neoliberal revolution or whatever came to Canada. And Pierre Trudeau, actually, Justin Trudeau's father, imposed um, controls on collective bargaining because I think more so than any other country, the labor and uh, employ employer relationship is very deeply embedded in the judicial and legislative paradigm of this country. It's very, very regulated by the laws of this country. And so governments can very easily change that relationship. And of course, in the... <laughs> And when they need to, they're going to change it against the proletariat. And so what Pierre did was impose wage controls. And this led to, you know, a one day general strike across Canada, the second one we had in this country in 1974. But it didn't really do anything. And then we were hit by, by a recession in the 80s, which caused a, a important decline in the private sector industrial unions. And finally, in 1988, we had the free trade agreement, um, which pretty much like uh, nailed the last nail in the coffin in terms of deindustrialization. De you know, it, 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 I think, it, I think the, the issue really started in 1944. Like it, it seems like that's not really the case in the UK, for instance. Um, well, I would say there is a similarity mm. in that the 
um, it seemed like you got um, the the employer-employee relationship there did actually get formalized much more in the judicial process than here. Mm-hmm. However, the the trade union bureaucracy in this country, as we've discussed before, did get um, semi-incorporated at least into the state machine to the point where like the, the, the industrial relations management was being done in an unofficial tripartite relationship between like the TUC leaders, the employers and the government for quite a long time that was formalized in the 70s when things heated up in terms of the class struggle. Mm. The, the, the bigger problem in the, for us, and I think the comparison with you, is that the, the long-term effect of the concessions post-45 was to sow an awful lot of illusions mm. with the idea that um, the the idea that the British state could be moved to make all these concessions, um, and yet the unique combination of circumstances that created the concessions that were made is not remembered or analysed. Only that the concessions were made at some point, mm. and so like all the trade union leaders, even like those who are more on the right, all hark back to that period from about 45 to 75. Mm. Yeah. And they it's used really as a sort of as a prop to support voting for the Labour Party as a sort of um uh, a demobilizing factor in industrial militancy. And there's, there's this big myth that a lot of like social democrats um like to put about that the the whole post-war compromise was only ruined because of the militancy of some of the the, the coal union NUM or the the militancy in the car industry and that they somehow provoked the employers to take these wonderful compromises away from us. Mm. That's the point of view you get in the union bureaucracy in this country. Mm. So I think like both of us, our working class movements, have been somewhat crippled by the myths of the post-war compromise. A little bit. I, I think a difference to the UK is that the, um, the labor movement um, leadership was never directly involved in imposing wage controls. Because there was no need here in Canada. Because all ah, right, they were here. Yeah, it wasn't not so in Canada, not for that direct purpose. It, just because, in contrast to the British and American system, there's such a high degree of embeddedness of uh, union rights and stuff in the legal and penal structure. So it was never really needed to implicate the union leaders. They're they're actually offered the Canadian labor movement was offered to participate in voluntary price and income policies, but they turned it down. But I mean, it didn't matter anyways because they couldn't fight against it when it happened. Mm. Yeah. Um. So that leaves us. That takes us up to date with the uh, the fact that the the labor movement um, basically has been as if not as openly defeated as we are we as ours has been, but has certainly been ground down in terms of its political and industrial. Um, uh, fighting nature. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very much gone out the window. I mean, for instance, there's not been like a major national industrial struggle in this country for many decades now. I'm taking it. It's the same over there. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. The problem is that the on paper, union density is quite high in Canada. It's somewhere about, you mm. know, 30% and it's remained steady for quite a few years. Um. On paper, but the the union density in the private sector is much lower. It's something like eleven or twelve percent, and the vast mm. majority of unionized workers, something like seventy five percent of them, are in the public sector. Um, yeah. yeah, and so uh, you know, a labor movement, traditionally speaking, 
um, the labor movement was always led by the productive workers, right? And so if the productive yeah. workers are not well organized or their unions that are not, you know, effective uh, at creating that, you know, even a trade union consciousness, which I think is the case in Canada, they're no longer effective even in doing that, then the labor union, union uh, sorry, movement get, ends, ends up getting led by, you know, unproductive workers or even worse, petty bourgeois radicals. Um, and so without that industrial kind of productive base to give energy and power to the labor movement, um, it ends up being quite impotent. And, you know, like I'm just thinking back to an Ontario example, we had huge strikes that I remember in the 90s. We had a huge, huge uh, called Days of Action in Ontario in response to some harsh cuts by a premier called Mike Harris. And, um, you know, I think it was something like four weeks worth of, 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 of strikes that rotated through the cities, but it was mostly the unproductive workers, like the nurses and the teachers. Mm. And it ended up, ended up doing not much at all to, in fact, the premier was reelected <laughs> and he did more cuts. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a big problem with a labor movement that is, um, dominated by the unproductive workers. I think I'm stuck in thinking through as to why exactly, but, um, it is a big problem because, Traditionally speaking, like the gains are first made by the productive workers and then they're made by the unproductive workers. That's what happened in Canada. You know, like collective bargaining yeah. was first won by the productive workers and then the public sector unions, uh, public sector workers won them, you know. So they kind of lead the way. Yeah. And it was the productive working class that suffered the the most direct assaults from the uh, all the governments post like 1965 aimed at destroying the trade unionism in particular in the productive tech sectors of the working class because that it was that which the whole union movement was balanced on yeah and mm -hmm. they kept me they kept making some concessions to the public sector until they were sure that the the, um, the productive working class had been thoroughly defeated and then they started attacking the public sector with the confidence that they're non-productive workers and they the the economic punch is just not there mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it leaves the rest of the union movement in a really bad situation because um, because the relationship between labor and um, employers is so mediated by the state, which is not a neutral actor, of course. At this mm. point in Canadian labor history, the states can do pretty much whatever they want. Um, they can put caps on wages, even if it's unconstitutional, they can, they can do whatever they want. And there's just no yeah. way that the unions, are, they don't know how to fight back. They don't know what to do. They'll go to the courts. The court even recently in Ontario ruled against something Doug Ford did. They said that the uh, his action, um, um, it uh, it was against um, the, our, the freedom of speech. And Doug Ford just repass legislation with the notwithstanding clause which allows provinces and the federal government actually to pass laws that are unconstitutional so there's no <laughs> you know it, that's more of a fuck you clause really isn't it <laughs> yeah it is yeah it's it's a really kind of uh more so than other countries i think the constitution here at least the charter on rights and freedom is very much just like toilet paper it counts for nothing <laughs> it's just something nice to think about it was something nice to put up placards in um in protest but like it really doesn't count for much 
But yeah, I mean, listen, I don't know. I think the question as to why the labor movement in Canada is the way that it is, is something I'm still figuring out. We definitely didn't have any dramatic break, like, you know, the miners strike in the 80s, for instance. But I think it's also because there's never been a very cohesive national labor movement either. So there's never been that same kind of cohesion amongst all the provinces from east to west coast, like there was north to south, east to west in the UK. Like that kind of cohesion never really happened in Canada, nor the United States. That's something very particular to, I'm assuming, French, uh, the French labor movement and the UK and perhaps other labor movements that I'm not as familiar with. Yeah, like national national labor movements in uh, the European countries are much more cohesive and more more common in terms of being able to pull off national action. Hmm. Um, Like... The in the history of the United States, I think that there has been like national strikes in a particular industry. Yes, but that there's never been in the United States or Canada, to my knowledge, anything like even our rather weak general strike here, which took place over the course of around about seven days, um, where literally every industry came out. Mm-hmm. But there's never been anything like that in the United States. There has been like famous city and sometimes statewide general strikes, but even that's not happened really since the 30s. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you've got the same problem they have, but, um, and also the same, but, but I think you're, whereas American trade unionism really was crushed. Yours has just been sort of withered. Yeah, it was kind of like defanged early on. And um, I think welfareism, the Mackenzie King, who um, was a, a PM during the World War II, was very inspired by the beverage report from the UK. Mm. Yeah. And so I think they took a lot of cues from the British welfare kind of system and so that also stemmed militancy the fact that you know for relatively earlier on we had things like national health care to some degree like it you know uh i think that the the the, the political sp- splits among amongst the provinces which um have a, a, a good a, very a lot of power the bourgeoisies have a lot of power amongst um rooted in each of the provinces I, there's a lot of different issues like it's it, it I, it's a lot to think about and, and understand um, but yeah, I mean, I think the United States case is a little, I don't know why their labor movement isn't stronger. They really, it really, it, in my mind, it really should be like they had a strong bourgeois revolution, like, you know, a, a kind of a strong national bourgeoisie in a lot of ways. Um, but the proletariat there, I mean, was attacked quite fiercely as well. So yeah, it's something to think about. Um, but Canada, it, it always kind of was defanged earlier on with these various, like neoliberalism in Canada, for instance, started earlier than in the UK and in um, the USA, so-called neoliberalism, because, I don't know, I just think the bourgeoisie here takes like its cues from like its imperialist overlords and it and it's kind of smart in um, kind of anticipating things and it always has been. Mm. Yeah. So, leading us then to a look at the, uh, perhaps a brief look, I don't know, at the the two major parties of the Canadian bourgeoisie, the Canadian Conservatives or Canadian Tories and the Liberals, like, is there... (laughs) Is there any real difference between them at all? Not just in terms of their class um, basis, but like in terms of where they draw their support, in terms of like the um, their what particular part of like Canadian or various regional capitalisms are they most invested in defending or advancing the cause of? Like, is there any point to even the two of them being separate parties? Uh, 
Um, I think functionally speaking, because Ottawa basically it because it has to it has to deal with all of these contradictory bourgeois bourgeois interests. It basically its politics basically gets boiled down to the lowest common denominator. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, like the parties do end up being quite similar. I mean, even in in this election, it was difficult to really point out major differences between the conservatives and and liberals. Um, they both, you know, were committed to dealing with climate change. They were both committed to, uh. <laughs> you know, O'Toole, who's the uh, conservative leader in Canada, who was running as the conservative leader of Canada this time around. We'll see how long he lasts now that he's lost. He was promising to, um, re- you know, vaccination, interprovincial vaccination passports. Like he was promising a 90% vaccine uptake. You know, it, it was kind of very, very like I... I, I I think there are some differences in terms of perhaps foreign policy. Some there's a clear bourgeois interest that is in Canada that's interested in in um, maintaining or enhancing the relationship with the U.S. versus China, and there's uh, the the left wing is more interested in growing the relationship with China, and this pretty much maps up out to uh, based on like where the experts are going according to the provinces. Um, but I mean, I think in power, especially like functionally speaking, when in power, the, the parties pretty much like the actual results are very much the same. So even though Trudeau was, for instance, promising a $10 a day childcare program, number one, there's not enough spaces. So even if you have that on paper, if you can't find a spot for your kid, it doesn't exist. And there's no clear way that the Trudeau has outlined that he's going to deal with the lack of um, spaces. Certainly Quebec, who who's, who have had a um, kind of a, a provincial cheap childcare paradigm since like the 90s, hasn't figured out how to provide enough spaces for the demand. So I don't know why Trudeau would figure it out for the entire country. And so in contrast, what O'Toole was offering was not that, not the $10 a day childcare, but instead he was offering a tax cut. And so what is a tax? Yeah, a tax cut. What it does functionally as as cost of living rises is is nothing. Right. So it's just when the politics actually get played out in real life, it equals mostly nothing. (laughs) So there's not really a huge difference for the proletariat. Like, you know, it's just different speeds, different, you know, how much slower can we continue to, can we hold on to our increasingly under capacity uh, public healthcare system in Canada? So the liberals will let us hold on to it for a little longer than the conservatives that will, you know, directly, O'Toole, for instance, was looking to, quote unquote, create more innovative solutions for uh, healthcare in Canada, which means opening it, opening it up to private providers, <laughs> of course. So like, yeah, that's exactly the same as it is here. An innovative solution means selling it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just different. I think different tempos, definitely a bit of a different kind of look, kind of the same soy flavor that Ottawa has to mm. adopt in order to deal with all of its contending bourgeois um, the, the different bourgeois interests that keep on pulling it this way and that. Um, but in the end, each of any federal PM in Canada can be counted on doing the following, which is lowering the money going towards public provisioning um, so that they can maintain some social reproduction, but as little as for little cost as possible. Uh, underwriting private risks of production at public expense, of course, via grants and subsidies. So you can look at the Canadian Infrastructure Bank for a great example of that. 
And yeah, just controlling the the fiscal and monetary environment to enable private enterprise. And of course, controlling immigration to the benefit of the bourgeoisie. So it's not really... Like fun, like in the major in major ways, there isn't in major on the ground ways there isn't a lot of difference. I think certainly there in terms of the way Trudeau presents himself as this woke bay, that would be different, <laughs> different than O'Toole. <laughs> but um, I mean, it doesn't actually mean that the people of Canada are experiencing their lives differently, whether there's Trudeau or O'Toole in power. Not really, like not in like major mm. ways. That's my opinion. I think I might I, I might get some pushback from some Canadians here, like, you know, especially Harper, for instance, maybe was a bit of a different conservative PM, but he really does stand out. So I think in, in the so, in the in the ensuing decades, especially like as we we're going to be seeing that the PMs are more and more alike, like the parties become more and more alike because they they don't really there's nothing to kind of pull them one way or the other. There is no proletariat to pull them away from bourgeois interests like they basically represent bourgeois interests just maybe different raw resources right so but you know what that means for people on the ground in terms of social provisioning um and the things that they care about um like wages like their wages are going to continue going down their cost of living is going to continue going up and social provisioning will keep on getting more privatized like that's just going to be no matter who's in power well (laughs) you have we have neglected one party so far the party that has been endorsed by such luminaries as the Momentum Movement in Britain, such winners as Senator (laughs) St. Bernard of Vermont, such incredible dynamic figures as uh, the likes of Paul Mason and the New Statesman, and that is the Canadian New Democratic Party. Um, Some people on various Marxist groups, including the International Marxist Tendency, claim that it is a bourgeois workers' party just waiting to be taken over by a determined entrist minority of Marxists. So... Give us the straight. Give us the straight dope on this. What is the NDP, and is any of the expectations of these fools true? No, the NDP was never a workers' party ever. This is so dumb. It is a petty bourgeois party, and always has been since the inception of its predecessor, the CCF, the Canadian Commonwealth Federation. This was also a petty bourgeois party. It was explicitly anti-communist, quote unquote, democratic socialist. And it ran. Oh, that's that's why Bernie loves it. (laughs) And it ran on an explicit platform of cross-class collaboration. The NDP is no different than that. It's exactly like that, except that it's been more explicit in dropping its overtly socialist positions, quote unquote socialist positions, since it got made in 1963, and since the CCF became uh, the NDP, and it explicitly sought to remake itself as a party that would appeal more to the quote-unquote middle class, the new middle class, as the petty bourgeoisie <laughs> transitioned into, like, you know, more professional dominated, right? And so it was, it, it, the NDP has no vision for society beyond capitalism. It's still trying to get that completely fake social contract with capital that capital is not interested in getting anymore with us, with labor, all right? It does absolutely no organizing outside of election time. It doesn't seek to, you know, for instance, educate the working class or even make linkages with the working class past a few emails to a few union bureaucrats and bosses. Has absolutely no connection with the working classes beyond its connection to the union bureaucrats, which is why it's able to get a few a few seats in the north of Ontario, for instance, where union density in the private sector is still strong, um, relatively strong. As a petty bourgeois party, 
you know, depleted of the the some of the working class support it used to get. Now it's depleted of that. It lacks direction completely. It's completely incoherent. And its leader, Jagmeet Singh, as I was saying, is not only the most annoying politician in Canada, he might be the most annoying politician in the world. He's a complete joke. He's obsessed with identity politics. And he is continuously flattered by its his equally ID, uh, identity politics obsessed petty bourgeois base. He's so annoying. <laughs> Last election, I remember he ran ads to Quebec telling them not to be scared because he wore a turban, presuming that Quebec is like racist. It was so insulting and annoying. He very much represents how the NDP is a party made for losers and by losers. They never win. Elect- they, the only time they did any, like, their best showing was under Jack Layden years and years ago. And they've just been going downhill from there. They were going downhill until Jack Layden, basically. He did a good job in getting some seats in Quebec. Once he died, it's been downhill from there. There's no future for them as because they never were a workers' party. Never. Never. I don't know where this myth comes from. They're such a terrible party. Um, these are the same people who will still insist they have to do deep interest work in Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Um, so these are not people with a firm foothold in reality. But um, I, I mean, are you saying that merely wearing a pink turban and a, and a double-breasted jacket isn't enough to connect with the Canadian working class? So it's not enough, but to his to Jagmeet Singh's... Um, to be fair, he realizes it's not his not enough, so he does a lot of work making little TikTok videos. And <laughs> <laughs> He's a TikToker. This makes it even better. Yeah, so he puts a lot of work into doing that to reach out to the working class. For some for some reason, that's not working too well either. Um, so I don't know. He's uh, I think he's at, at the end of his rope. He um, made sure to get his wife pregnant in time for the elections. <laughs> well, you got to time that, you know. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I got one on the way. That's got to be worth at least 100000 yeah, so right? He could mention during the debates, like five times a debate, that he was going to be a As dad. As a father-to-be, <laughs> yeah. I'm very concerned about climate exactly. change. I want the ch- my child to grow up in a world where polar bears aren't being <laughs> melted. Yeah, so um, he, he tried his best, but even his best wasn't good enough. <laughs> I mean, uh, bloody hell, if, you, if wearing a pink turban, a suit jacket, doing TikTok videos and knocking at your wife isn't enough, I don't know what is. Yeah, and another thing about him is that he's always wearing like these three-piece suits without a tie. I don't know, like, what is that? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Uh, he, it's, uh, you can blame Tony Blair for that one. That was... Um, <laughs> That was one of his things was like he would go no tie or like if he was really serious and he wanted to make it look as if he was making a point, he'd take off his suit jacket and roll up his sleeves whilst giving a speech. And like the moronic (laughs) journalists from like The Guardian and The Independent would go, oh, my God, it was so good. Like he... He was. He looked casual, but he sounded authoritative. My God, it's amazing. No, the, another thing I've been saying, and like the UK politicians, I find like maybe the UK politicians have the uh, the accent, and so they sound really good. But like, Jagmeet Singh doesn't know how to speak to people. He speaks with uptalk. Like it's really annoying. Like. He has no charisma whatsoever. I don't know why the NDP is holding on to him. Like, I know that they will not uh, challenge his leadership because he didn't. He he won one seat, but not losing any seats is like a good showing for the NDP. <laughs> it seems. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, it's just a terrible leader. Extremely annoying. Um, can't you can't even depend on him to come out consistently on foreign affairs issues? Like, horrible. Anyways, um, so disappointed that turn... he's not gone. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's turn finally then to uh, a look at like what Trudeau thought his selling point was going to be, which is the COVID policy and his handling of uh, the so-called pandemic. And like Canada, as we've covered extensively here, um, has adopted a very reactionary policy that's like does have certain similarities with the other Commonwealth countries, which are also apparently run by people with no brains, um, Australia and New Zealand. So has Trudeau's gamble been proven correct? Were people very impressed with his handling of COVID? And did that actually help him in this election? Because it, all it appeared to have done is keep him exactly where it was. Um, no, I, I think people were quite bothered by the fact that he uh, called an election in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we actually had the lowest turnout, I think, since a long time, if not ever, in this election, voter turnout. And um, I, I don't know, Trudeau just, I think people have, in the polls at least, um, they were quite supportive of his handling of the pandemic. And I'm sure in the same thing in the UK, the polls do show themselves quite supportive of the lockdowns and the vaccination mandates and the vaccine passports, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the polls do show popular support for these kinds of um of policies. So I think that the polls are probably over-exaggerated. And I don't think any anyone around Trudeau's circle um, does anything but flatter him. Um, and so he thought that he could run essentially a referendum on his handling of the pandemic. Um, I think that just the, because there's a lack of there's just like a lack of competition here. Like, who else are we going to vote for? Right. There's nothing mm. there's nothing else to vote for. So people just put they're like, OK, well, like put them back. Like, just whatever we had was fine. Like, don't fix it if it's not broken, I guess. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I just think that it definitely wasn't it wasn't the the hit out of the park, as they say, or in sports term. What is it? The, Knock it out yeah, of the park. it wasn't that, but I think people are have been made very afraid of COVID nineteen in Canada. I think there is a lot of fear, including within the working classes, with regards to COVID nineteen. And I think another thing is that people really do value the public healthcare system here, and the rhetoric around the lockdowns is always about protecting the public healthcare system, same as in the UK. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, people are very sensitive to that. And if if they're being told by all of the doctors and scientists and politicians that vaccine pass Passports is what ne- is what is needed, and those dirty, unvaccinated people is what co- what is causing the problem. Then they're going to be supportive of a policy that is that sne- seems to be addressing that problem. But obviously, it wasn't enough. He was wrong. Like I think Trudeau thinks he's just fantastic. I think he has a very high self image of himself. I think he's a complete narcissist. Um, and th- like there was no grand project that he was running on, and so. I don't know. There was nothing to give him a majority for. Like he was doing fine mm. with regards to pandemic management with his minority. So I think the people just didn't think he needed a majority to do anything that he wanted to do. And it's true. <laughs> so they didn't give it to him. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my my read on it. Well, so we'll conclude with the most important <laughs> question, which is whether is the Canadian Revolution <laughs> Um, who's first for consignment to the the Canadian Gulag? For sure, the first person will be Christia Freeland to the Gulag, just because it'd be funny. Because she's always oh, her yeah. her uh, grandfather was a Nazi, um. <laughs> so she'd feel at home, really. I mean, it'd be keeping up a family tradition. Yeah, so it would be a little bit like a bit of irony if she were to um end up in the Canadian communist Gulag. 
Um, you didn't see that coming, did you, Christia Freeland? Uh, but in all seriousness, I don't. I don't think the revolution will happen in Canada. I, I think we're going to have to depend on um, our imperial overlords in the UK or the USA to lead the way here, or the proletariat in those countries rather to lead the way there here in this situation. Um, I think that the Canadian proletariat um, has shown itself able to fight like important battles and win and defend those gains to a large extent. But I just think the lack of national cohesion is a big barrier. Um, and I mean, I, I think the threat that some Canadian provinces might be annexed by the United States in the coming decades is that's not unrealistic. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, um, we wait, we await the aggressive uh, turn in U.S. imperialism towards the securing of its uh, immediate borders, and that's actually not a joke either. Like if you if you take seriously the idea that the U.S. is can, is now having to retrench towards like securing securing its own hemisphere, then it may well be that it starts looking towards controlling like resource rich areas of Canada or other areas in the um, to the south of the United States. Those aren't those things aren't out of the question. Yeah, um, n- nothing would stop them. We don't have a big military. We don't have a cohesive bourgeoisie to come together and fight up, fight off. Like there's the the links between some of the provinces and the United States and some states in the United States is tighter than the links between each of the provinces, right? Hmm. Like so, so it's not. I don't think it's unthinkable at all. Like you know, for instance, Quebec sells a ton of. I think just recently made a deal with um to be New York State's main energy provider, green energy provider, quote unquote, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So like um, it's not unthinkable. I just think, you know, a lack of bourgeois revolution or a weak one can really hamper your national development. And just look at Japan, which is the main lesson to be drawn from <laughs> this whole thing, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, you know. You, like learn your like it it really does make a big difference i'm trying to say and like um i, I think this this kind of insight can be applied to some extent to new zealand and australia like you you have this this i don't know a lack of of energy from that rev, that bourgeois revolution that would have energized the proletariat to fight back against or to not accept these kind of draconian covid-19 protocols like you know for instance like even the uk like um when i was there People weren't following the rules with the masks and blah, blah, blah. Like that kind of those kind of little pieces of resistance is is comparatively much more rare in Canada. Like people are very, mm. you know, they follow the rules and like they're very nervous and like they don't want to make any, anyone upset. They don't want to be rude and whatever. I don't know. It's a bit of a different feel. I'm trying to connect this all to bourgeois revolution or lack thereof. <laughs> Might be oversimplifying it, but. <laughs> well. I think there's a fair there's a fair comparison to be drawn because like the one of the big complaints of the British bourgeoisie was has always been uh, right back to like the 18th century and like the dawn of like uh, in major industrialization has all it's always been that the working class is too drunk too um too unruly too <laughs> sub, too violent too stupid um that's a, but they don't they don't know whether they're complaining about the last one <laughs> But certainly, they've always they they've always uh, worried um, that the 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 British working class is just too uh, a bunch of unruly yobbos, basically who um, they want to try and control, but can never they never want to go too far in um, pushing 
things like um, telling the working class how to live. They've been, been quite sensible in uh, not going too hard on prohibition until recently where they started doing ridiculous things like banning smoking in most places and stuff like that, which seems like a small thing. But like usually the British bourgeoisie's like unspoken deal is, well, you can get as drunk as you like, just turn up to work on Monday. Um, and... The the unruliness of the British working class kind of is like a, the nation's saving grace in many respects, um, because the bourgeoisie, like even though some of the more fanatical of them would like to rediscipline the the British working class all over again, they haven't quite gone there yet. Um, I think the same is true of the Americans as well. Like the there's plenty of states in the Union that remain unruly. Um, that are more generally they're the poorer. Um, more heavily proletarian areas, and when it comes to COVID, like it's the ultra petty bourgeois areas of the United States that have been the most fanatical. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. So I think our um, I think the 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 legacy of like the certainly the legacy of like the revolution in England and the various other things that have happened, certainly the fact that there has been such a long, long legacy of like very bitter often very violent class conflicts in this country, does leave a bit of a scar on the bourgeoisie's imagination in a way I don't think is there in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, even though all of those places, like certainly Australia and New Zealand, more so Australia, have had very violent and intense class conflicts at times. Um, like Australia, I think, had a fairly settled um welfare state policy by like the beginning of the 20th century and a more comprehensive voting rights structure than we did so i think that, that kind of like with you what you were saying about uh canada post-world war ii like the sting might have been taken out of their struggle fairly early on and so i think now like you're only just sort of starting to see like the um the, the the a real fracturing where the um the aussie uh construction workers rioting um, but uh, a lot of, with with like a lot of the colonial places, like um, because like the the state formation, as you've been describing about Canada, has been so strange, and then the formation of the classes has been taken place in a much more untypical way. It does lead to very very strange distortions in politics that you don't get even in like the other advanced capitalist nations. It leads to also very retarded politicians, even more so than you get here. Yeah, just an awful group of, especially like a, just awful petty bourgeoisies. Just the worst. Oh my goodness. And like no, like very little, um, uh, very little variety in terms of, of, of political and uh, of politics and thought in Canada. And I'm assuming New mm. Zealand and, and, and the, uh, in Australia. Like every single petty bourgeois scientist and doctor has the same opinion on all of this stuff. It's always we aren't doing it enough. Do more of it. And now, <laughs> and now I'm gonna cry. <laughs> and now I'm gonna cry. I'm gonna complain about my job on Twitter. Like so, I don't know. I, I I've noticed like in the UK, like you you know, Parliament has like people who uh, like call themselves socialists, right? Uh, and and 
like backbenchers and the Tories yeah. that like speak out against the lockdowns in the UK. And like, yes, I know you're laughing, but that is something that doesn't happen in Canada. <laughs> There's no politician <laughs> in the in the entire country that calls themselves a socialist. Um, I, as far as I know, maybe there was one a few years ago and now they've retired. Um, and also, like, we do have maybe one or two politicians across the country that have stood up against the lockdowns um, only to be expelled from the Conservative caucus, right? The You know, for instance, in yeah. Ontario, that's what happened. Um, so, you know, it makes for a very, I don't know, suffocating uh, intellectual environment that I, I think there's a bit more dynamism in the United States and the UK. There's at least very, there's at least differences in opinion within the bourgeoisie, not for, for these COVID-19 um, like uh, things, like not so in Canada. Like Doug Ford, for instance, is a super conservative premier. So is uh, Kenny of uh, of Alberta. They've both instituted vaccine passports as soon as it got a little bit. As soon as the the chorus of petty bourgeois doctors and scientists got loud loud enough, they instituted them. There's no resistance anywhere. So yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks, but um, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with it. I still like Canada. I still like Canadians. Um, but um, I mean, it sucks to have to have a vaccine passport. I gotta say, <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, if, 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 if things are too bad, I'm going to immigrate to um to the UK. <laughs> yeah, Back well, to the motherland. And, um, <laughs> back, go reverse colonization. Yes. It's, it, we welcome it now. <laughs> and on that bombshell, uh, that concludes our run through of the Canadian federal election from uh, senior Canadian <laughs> political analyst Layla um, and uh, we thank we thank you for this and uh, unfortunately we can't promise the same level of pay as the uh, the BBC correspondents got to stand in Ottawa and go Justin Trudeau has been rewarded for his steady handling <laughs> of the pandemic which is the only coverage we've got here yeah I was reading uh, Trudeau is claiming that the election results show that Canadians just want him to get back to work and, you know, they, they're not interested in election. <laughs> they're, like, they're not interested in the election he just called. Yeah. I like, guess an interesting analysis. I, I, He would be so out as a leader if there was any talent there that was willing to challenge him at this point. I think Christian Freeland is going to be the next contender for the leadership of the Liberal parties and Mark Carney, actually, the ex-governor of the Bank of England and um, yeah, yeah, the ex-governor of Bank of Canada um, seems to be gearing up towards that position as well. And who better <laughs> than a guy who oversaw like a massive housing bubble in both countries? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> we've, who we've... better to be prime minister when it all falls apart? <laughs> exactly right. Um, so, but they're not ready. Neither of them are ready to uh, challenge Trudeau quite yet. So we're we're stuck with him. We and the world are stuck with Justin Trudeau for another two to four years. <laughs> hopefully less. Well, hopefully, uh, I hope he goes back to doing blackface because that was, seems to be much more entertaining. Yeah, I hope he spins up some uh, more of those feminist um, portmanteau-type words. Like, Well, <laughs> all I can say, Layla, is enjoy the she cover. Yeah, I'm going to enjoy the housing <laughs> collapse. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's not as the, easy the as she, you think. It's not as easy as you think. The she hours in collapse in on terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I will enjoy that when it comes. 
<laughs> because in the end, gentlemen, women only want one thing. And it's the collapse of the Canadian housing bubble. It's all I want. Trudeau thinks he can appeal to women with his like feminism and his like fake $10 a day childcare program that will never reach most women. But actually, the only thing we really want, well, we do want the childcare, but the thing that we really, really want is, is the housing market collapse. So Justin Trudeau, if you want to be a real feminist, collapse this <laughs> housing market. <laughs> Mr. Trudeau. Burst this bubble. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we will leave it there for this, your weekend edition. We hope you have enjoyed this guide through the highways and byways of the Canadian political system. And we will see you again very soon. Yeah, take care.